0: Well, I hope you have your Bibles. If you don't have your Bible with you, would you please grab one on the back of that pew that's the English Standard Version of the Bible and uh we want to be in that together. This is a this is a church that preaches from the word of God exclusively. And uh I want to thank Scott Bennett who just ducked out by the way for a um poor Scott, poor Scott. Scott last Tuesday when when he heard of Denise's brother's death, and knew that I was going to be heading out of town quickly, he says, well, is there anything I could do for you? I said, Scott, how do you like to preach? Uh, okay, if you want me to do that, I can. And I said, yeah, that'd be great. Thanks, Scott. I'll see you Monday. <laughs> and he did. And uh, I'll tell you what, it was a great experience for him, and I trust it was for you as well. But we're back in this series called Summer in the Sun, and all we're doing is looking at the Gospel of Mark, which, friends, you've got to remember is distinct and unique from Matthew, Luke, and John because Mark writes in a very fast-paced story, narrative fashion. There's only two or three times that Mark really comments and writes about the literal teachings of Jesus. He's giving us a picture of what Jesus looked like in action, what he did what his mission was. And so we're going to be looking at Jesus, God on a mission this morning in the passage of verses 29 through 39. That's Mark chapter 1. If you know anything about Billy Sunday, I've got a t-shirt with Billy Sunday on it, and it's captured in a photo, the, the iconic essence of Billy Sunday. He had more energy than probably any preacher you'll ever, ever have seen. He's no longer alive. He was a professional baseball player. The Lord captured his heart and his affections. He used Billy Sunday um, on this earth to preach powerfully and excitedly and simply the evangelistic call of the gospel. And Billy Sunday preached to thousands and thousands of people. He said this one time, and I want this to sort of guide us into the sermon this morning from the words, from the lips of Billy Sunday is this statement. More men fail through lack of purpose than lack of talent. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that statement, it sort of galvanized my own experiences and my own observations that it's really less about the talent that you have and the talent that I have in the kingdom of God and a whole lot more do you really, really know why you're on this planet? So let me ask that. Honestly, do you really know what God wants to do in your life and through your life for the kingdom of God? Do you know your purpose? I mean, why do you even live? Acts tells us that when David, King David, completed his purposes that God had given to him, he fell asleep. That means he died. That means when God was finished with David, when David had completed why God gave him life, when his mission and when his purpose was done, God said, you don't need to be on this planet another day. Come on home. Listen, the fact that you and I are breathing and alive this morning has to tell you something that is an irrefutable, biblically redemptive fact God's not done with you yet. He has a job for you. He's got a mission for you. He's got a purpose for you. But here's my resolution Very, very few Christians know what that is. Well, how do you know that, Pastor Tim? Because I ask. I ask Christians, why did God create you? Why are you here? Because I know something that maybe you don't believe, or I know that God's got a mission for you, or else you wouldn't be here anymore. Because He wants you in heaven with Him. He's got you here for a job and it has everything to do with the kingdom of God. Do you know your mission and do you know your purpose? You know the Son of Man did. Jesus did. Can I show it to you? Here's mission language. Mark chapter 10. For even the Son of Man came. There's your clue. He's telling you why He's here. Why He came to this earth. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is his mission statement. This is Jesus telling us, this is Mark capturing the words, listen believer, listen church, Jesus knew his purpose, Jesus knew his mission, he came with a with a focused track to give his life as a ransom for many. That the righteous would die for the unrighteous, the godly for the ungodly, he would stand in our place and make the payment that would rescue us out of bondage to sin. That's what it means to give His life as a ransom for many. He knew His mission. You see, this missionless living that many of us are guilty of. I'm going to keep you tethered to this. Do you know your mission? Listen, don't don't unhelpfully generalize your answer to that. Don't say, "Yeah, I know my mission. It's to bring glory to God." It's to tell people about Jesus. Don't, don't do that. That's utterly unhelpful. Yes, we should bring glory to God. That's the final end game. That's the end point for all of our life, but that's not the specifics of your mission that can give you a focus in life. Your mission has details. Your purpose in life has information that can guide you and gird you into powerful, powerful living. So why are you on this planet? Why do you have life? Well, missionless living, when you don't know that, it's often responsible for the most frustrating lives of Christians that I've ever seen. You know, it was 2006, March, and I was up in my office, and I didn't know what was about to happen in three and a half months. See, in early July, Pastor Dean, our senior pastor, was going to call the entire board to come up to the Paul Harrison's residence. And I didn't even know why he was doing that. I'm his closest friend. I'm his closest comrade in this church. I didn't even know what was the purpose of this meeting. Well, the purpose of the meeting was to let us all know that he had taken a church out in Kenosha, Wisconsin, Prior to that, three and a half months, friends, I had no ambition to be a senior pastor. My limited view of a senior pastor was you'd have to stay in your office, and you have to study all day, and your exposure to people is done. And I'm a people person. And the Lord, I'm, I'm in prayer, and I'm on my knees. I'm up in the office that Pastor Tim has right now. I'm on my knees, and I'm praying, and I'm going, Lord, I do sense, I sense something of transition coming in my life. It's vague, it's ambiguous, but it's frightening me. I've got anxiety because I don't know what it is. In fact, Lord, I don't even really know what is it you want me to do. Now, I've been in the ministry since 1992. This is 2006. And if you had asked me, what's your mission in life, I would have given you the vague generality of being giving glory to God in all things and bringing people to Jesus. Utterly unhelpful, even though it's true. Until that moment on my knees, all of a sudden God spoke into my heart. Now, I've never heard God audibly speak, but I've heard that sweet, still spirit speak to me. And all of a sudden God says, Tim, I've made you for a very simple, narrow reason. And it's for this reason. To take the Word of God, to take my Word, Tim, and get it to the hearts of people and to lead them into transformation. Do you know how many pastors preach to your mind only. Do you know how many counselors counsel to your behavior only? Do you know how unhelpful that is? If you don't get truth down in the heart, you can't change. Cuz the heart above all else, guard it for it springs forth the issues of life. And the moment that God spoke to that to my heart with that little message that I made you to take my word and bring it to the hearts of people and lead them in a transformation, all of a sudden my entire life snapped into focus and I was all of a sudden galval- galvanized and motivated with a simple message that, Tim, you're on this planet for one reason and I've given you everything you need to do all that I've asked you to do. That changed my life, that little moment up in that office on my knees in prayer. Has God spoken to you? He won't unless you're in prayer because that's almost always how he speaks his mission. And it takes prolonged time in the fellowship of God. Thomas Carlyle, a Scottish sage, said this, a man without a purpose is like a ship without a rudder. He's a waif, a nothing, a no man. He says, have a purpose in life and having it throw such strength of mind and muscle into your work as God has given you. My goal this morning is simply this. Let's see Jesus understand his mission and live it out in powerful, powerful living. Well, if you remember from two weeks ago, you remember we looked at Jesus and the passage just preceding this and he had preached in a synagogue and his preaching was authoritative. He, didn't, he wasn't like the rabbis of his day. You see, the rabbis of his day would quote from other rabbis. They would get their authority from the other rabbis. The two most famous Rabbis at Jesus' day were Rabbi Gamaliel and Rabbi Hillel and often scribes and Pharisees and rabbis would begin their teaching. Rabbi Hillel says this. Let me expound upon it. Jesus never did that. Jesus always said, my authority is from, from my Father. He sent me. I am the living word. I wrote the word and I'm telling you from my own authority what God is telling you. And it was a way of teaching that no one had ever experienced before. It was so shocking that the Greek says it left the people in that synagogue thunderstruck. I know of a church where the senior pastor got up one morning. Nobody knew this was coming. And he confessed to an adulterous affair and that he was leaving the ministry. And everybody in the church was struck into mute silence. Well, that's the thunderstruck nature, but they weren't struck by the sin of Jesus. He had no sin. They were struck mute by the authority and the power of His preaching. And it was demonstrated when all of a sudden a man shrieking in the middle of the church cries out filled with a demon, and Jesus commands that demon to be silent because He will accept no praise from any worker of evil. He will only accept praise from His people. And He casts that demon out of that man. And again, it amazes and it astonishes the people of that synagogue. And they began a discussion group. Really not the reaction that Jesus would have liked. Listen, when you see the Son of Man in His glory, the only right reaction is to fall down on our faces and repent and give Him even more than we ever have our entire lives they began talking among themselves, who is this guy? Well, Jesus leaves and it's noon because the synagogue service always ended at noon. And there was always a customary Sabbath feast, so they would have left the synagogue, all the people, but we've got in mind Jesus and the four disciples and traveled to their homes for the Sabbath meal. And here we pick it up in Mark 1.29, immediately upon the ending of that synagogue service. And he says this, Immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. So here we go. The five of them leave the synagogue and they go to Peter's home. Peter and Andrew shared a home. And if you went to Capernaum today, friends, what you're going to find in Capernaum is nothing but a set of ruins scattered one mile long along the the shore of the Sea of Galilee. But in that day of Jesus' day, Andrew and Peter owned a home, and the architecture today that we can see was probably in the form of what's called an insula complex. An insula complex is very fascinating. It's a block of apartments all built around an inner courtyard. So on the other side of the complex, you've got the street, and there's no ro- there's no doors, there's no windows facing the street for safety and security reasons, The only way in, the only windows in were from the courtyard, and it allowed whole families to be able to live together yet have their own separate apartments because we know this was Andrew's, this was Peter's, and his mother-in-law was there as well. So they've got an apartment complex by all indications called an insula complex. And they walk in there, And when they enter the home, they discover that Peter's mother-in-law was in bed, ill with a fever, verse 30. Now, if you go to Luke's Gospel, by the way, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all capture this incident, all capture this story, but shading different details according to the purpose of their book. Luke is a doctor, physical, medical doctor. And so he writes that she was in bed with a high fever. Matthew and Mark don't mention that. But in the Greek, the word for high is mega. You ever mega-sized your McDonald's fries? You ever watched a megastar play basketball? Well, mega is huge. She was in bed with an incredibly high fever. Now, we would think, okay, go to the pantry, go to the medicine cabinet, pop some Advil, and you got the fever down. They didn't have that. She was seriously sick. With what was in that time, friends, now listen, you got to know this if you're going to climb into the the story. At that time, this was life-threatening. Fevers can kill. And this was a life-threatening, high fever, according to Luke. And fevers weren't, viewed by the rabbis as symptomatic. That's always a symptom of an infection that your body is fighting. They didn't see that then. They didn't know that then. The fever was always the illness itself. So this isn't a symptom that she's in bed with. They viewed it as she's in bed with a life-threatening disease. You see, rabbis had two... Ways, two perspectives that they viewed a fever as. Did you know this? This is really interesting. Fevers were either caused by God or they were caused by demons. That was the extent of their knowledge of a fever. Well, we might think, well, how could they ever, I mean, how could they ever view a fever as caused by God? Well, listen, go to Leviticus 26. And go to verse 16. And you'll find that sometimes God says Himself that He will send a fever when somebody breaks His covenant. And so this wove itself into medical treatment. And so they viewed fevers as either divine judgments or the evidence of demonic activity. And we see in verse 30 that Peter and whoever else immediately told Jesus about her. Now, I'm sure most of us have read this so many times. Have you ever just paused after verse 30 where it says, immediately they told him about her and just meditated on that, just chewed on that, just saturated your mind with that little truth? I mean, friends, do you have somebody in your life that's struggling, that's suffering? Do you have somebody, I do, do you have somebody in your life whose faith just seems to be beaten down because one trial comes after another like the waves of the ocean and you can see their faith just seeming to extinguish before your eyes? What do you do with that person? Do you give them a pep talk? Do you try to give them... Empty, encouragement. Do you see the truth in this? Is that when somebody's suffering in the home of Peter, they didn't do anything else but bring Jesus to her. Pretty soon we're going to see friends of a paralytic bring him to Jesus. But the two have to meet. Our struggling friends have got to meet with our powerful Lord. And so unhelpful advice of empty philosophy and counseling that is devoid of Christ-centered biblical truth is not the way to go, and it's demonstrated for us. We've got to be a church filled with believers that know when our friends are struggling, there's only one place you go, there's only one person you go, and it's to Jesus Christ. And they go to Him... And they demonstrate what we all ought to do, and that is pray. Pray, pray, pray. You know what we do when we pray? You do understand, right, that every believer is a priest. It's a priesthood of all believers, according to Hebrews. And when you and I pray... For our struggling friends, you are a bridge, which is what the word priest means. You are a bridge between the struggling believer and the omnipotent good God. And you join their hands, even if they never even know that you're praying for them. You are bringing the goodness and the power of God to your friend. And you're bringing your friend to the mercies of God. It's what we ought to be doing more and more, and we should be encouraged at the response of Jesus. Look at verse 31. He came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. Do you, fr- friends, do you know, do you really know that no rabbi ever would have touched her? Women were at the bottom of the cast in Jesus' day. A rabbi would have gone. And a rabbi would have rebuked the fever. A rabbi would have done what I'm about to tell you they would have done, but they would not have taken her by her hand and walked her out of that bed. That's intimacy. And what is Jesus like? If you want to know what God is like, haven't you ever asked God, what are you like? Well, here you go. Here's what God is like. God is like His Son, Jesus. And if you double-click on Jesus, it expands the full nature of God. This is what God is like. He grabs struggling people by their hands, and He tenderly, intimately, lovingly walks them out of their struggle. Well, here's what the rabbis would have done. Here's the cure. Here's the cure, the prescription, their treatment for a mega fever. They would have taken a knife made totally out of iron, and they would have taken some of the sick person's hair and they would have braided that hair, tied it to the knife, and tied it to a thorn bush. You're seeing it behind me. This is actually out of the Talmud, which is the Jewish book. This is what they would have gone by. They would have tied it to the thorn bush. And then the first day, read Exodus 3, 2-3. through 3. This is the account of Moses and the burning bush. High fever, burning bush. The second day, they would have read Exodus 3-4. And if the person is still alive... The third day they would have read Exodus 3, 5. And then they would have ended that third day's reading by cutting down the thorn bush while while citing a magical formula. Friends, this is straight out of the book called the Talmud. This isn't what Jesus did, is it? See, we can have our hope in Jesus. He is powerful. How gentle He is. As he comes to her bed, and Luke says he rebukes her fever. You know, the most angry that I think I've ever been in my life, consistently am ever in my life, are for husbands who have affairs on their wives and for parents who neglect and beat their children. Nothing makes me madder than that. And Jesus, nothing makes Jesus madder than what causes suffering in his people. And Luke says he rebukes the fever. And then Mark says he grabs hold of his mother in law, Peter's mother in law's hand, and he walks her out of bed. He doesn't do what modern healers do. He doesn't make her walk up on a stage in front of thousands of spectators. He doesn't beat her alongside the head. He doesn't push her down. He doesn't make a spectacle. He doesn't bring any, any glory, any attention to himself. He just tenderly takes her hand. And walks her out of sickness. You want to know if somebody really does truly have the gift of healing? Friends, don't find it in these spectacular demonstrations. Find it in the person who quietly will come along you and pray for you and beg for God's mercy. This is the method of Jesus God in the flesh reaches for her hand and takes this seriously ill woman who has a life-threatening fever of which there is no true antidote and heals her and brings her out of the sickness. And look at what her response is in verse 31. The fever left her. Now listen. She began to serve them. You know that the very root definition of the word worship is serve. You ever want to know what's it means to really worship God? Then i got to tell you, the very root concept is Romans 12, 1. Lay yourself on his altar and say, you've got me, all of me. See, Jesus heals this woman, and what's her response? Not going around town telling people what a wonderful gift God gave. Not a discussion group that says, how did he do that? Simply a response of laying herself at the altar and saying, I want nothing more than to serve Jesus. He saved me. He healed me. He freed me. He rescued me. Why? Not to make me a free person, but to make me a freed person. Freed to serve Him. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I was uh, flat in my back. I had hurt my back badly, probably the worst time in about 20 years. And I'm in my recliner, laid out, can hardly move, can't find any... You've all had this happen. You know, when your back hurts, everything hurts. And all of a sudden, Carissa comes home, my daughter, from being overnight with her friend. And she takes her backpack up to her room, and she comes back down to the stairs in the living room, and the first thing she says is, Dad, is there anything you need? Can I get you anything? But five minutes later, Denise came up from downstairs in the laundry room and she comes up and drops something off in the kitchen, comes right back out in the living room and says, Honey, do you need anything? Can I get you something? I know you're in pain. What what do you need? I can get it for you. Friends, Carissa's learning to serve because my wife is such a server. And because my wife knows something. If you knew my wife's background, you will know that when she was four years old, her father, who was an alcoholic, took a gun and pointed it right at all five of the kids and threatened to shoot them. Drunk. Thank God he could not find the shotgun shells. You will know uh, what background my wife was rescued out of by the grace of Christ, and that has created in her a perpetual thankfulness that, that demonstrates itself in serving other people. She's a server. And so isn't Carissa. And so isn't Peter's mother-in-law. This man rescued me. He saved me. I can't think of what else I'd rather do than to serve Jesus and serve the people around Him. There's an, an old Scottish motto. Three words, and it says, Saved to serve. Isn't that you? Now, whenever a pastor asks you that question, If you're like me, all of a sudden a battle erupts in my mind. Of course it's me. And then the Spirit says, really? You like to serve when you're the one choosing to serve, but what if somebody asks of you, do you still like to serve? saved to serve my favorite preacher ever. I wish he was alive. When I was alive, I'd love to meet him one day. I will, Charles Spurgeon. He once had a lady come up to him after church and she said this. This is amazing. She says, Oh, Mr. Spurgeon, Christ has changed my life and He shall never hear the end of it. He will never hear the end of it, meaning He will never see the end of it as well. I will serve Him until the day I die. This is the response that Peter's mother-in-law shows the church. This is what a saved people of God ought to do with their lives. Jesus, what is it you want me to do? Let me serve you. You will never see or hear the end of my gratitude. And then all of a sudden, verse 32 says that the evening came and the first knock Came to the door. You see, the Sabbath was very constraining to the Jews. You couldn't carry a burden on the Sabbath. You could only walk so far on the Sabbath. They had dozens and dozens, over a thousand rules that governed what you could and could not do on the Sabbath. And you knew when the Sabbath came to the end, the Sabbath always came to the end that day when the dusk settled. And the sun began to go down, and the first three stars appeared in the sky. Listen, you'd go outside as a Jewish person at the time of Christ, and when you could see three stars, that was the end of the Sabbath for that day, and you were free to move. So we know it's in the evening, and we know the stars have appeared, and all of a sudden people began to carry their sick and carry their needy to Jesus, and they knew where He was. They knew He was in this insula complex, They came in through the courtyard and Mark tells us the whole town came. How big is Capernaum? 10,000 people. That's a lot of people. That's a big line. And Mark tells us Jesus began healing and Jesus began uh, casting demons out and Luke supplies something Mark and Matthew don't that all who came, Jesus healed. All who came with demons Jesus cast them out. This is remarkably exhausting. Listen, on Sunday afternoons, I can tell you, I go home and I'm flat exhausted. Especially when there was four services going on in a weekend. And that's nothing compared to Jesus. He just preached in the synagogue. He just cast a demon out. And all of a sudden, the whole town comes to Peter's door and he begins healing. And he begins dispossessing people of demons. And all of a sudden, the Luke, uh, Mark picks it up. Without telling us, he went to bed, but woke up early. Look at verse 35. Rising early, very early in the morning. Well, that word morning in the Greek, friends, is always reserved for the third and final watch of the night. It was between 3 and 6 o'clock in the morning. And the fact that Mark says very early in the morning tells you it's shaded closer to 3 than it is 6. And so very early in the morning, Jesus while it was still dark, departed and went out to a desolate place and there he prayed. You ever notice how often he does this? Four times in Mark, and if you bring in the other gospel writers repeatedly, he's constantly going away from the frenetic busyness of ministry back to a desolate place where it's just he and just his father and he taught his disciples to do the same. Don't you remember when He sent out His 70 disciples and they went all around the towns in Galilee preaching and doing miracles and they came back and they were excited and Jesus says, I saw Satan falling like lightning. What does Jesus do? He says, come on, let's go to the country. Let's go to a desolate place. Let's take a break and let's remember to be praying and staying in fellowship with our Father. And Jesus models this. Remember when He went to the garden hours before His death Do you remember that each evening during the last week before He was crucified, the Bible tells us He keeps going out to a desolate, lonely place in the Mount of Olives. Why? Because the most difficult thing that Jesus was going to do in His life suffer our sins, the humiliation we should have suffered, the physical torment of the cursedness of crucifixion was about to come on Him and fall on Him, the wrath of His Father. He spent that week, friends, in close, intimate fellowship with His Father. Jesus loved to pray. He loved to talk. He loved to commune. He loved to be to be listening to His Father, but why? Have you ever wondered why? He's God. Jesus is God in flesh. Why did He love to pray? I think, personally, this is where we so least understand Jesus. Some of us think that Jesus, being fully man and fully God, had the exercise and the choice of all of his divinity at every moment while he was on this earth. Friends, Philippians 2 tells us, it's called the kenosis theory, that he emptied himself. What's that mean, he emptied himself? The best way I can explain it is he took the divine prerogative, the divine choice making to exercise his divinity, and he said, it is in your hands, Father. You will tell me when I can exercise my power. So why did He go to His Father all night before He chose out of 70 followers the 12 that would become His disciples? Because it was in that time that the Father spoke to His Son and they communicated and they and they conversed about this. These are the 12 I want you to have. Why is it that a woman with a 12-year bleeding disorder could touch His robe and He feels His power go out and then He looks around trying to find the woman? Is it an act? Friends, it's no act. He exercises divinity at the discretion of His Father. And so prayer was the constant subjecting Himself to the will of the Father, not so unlike us. What job offer should you take? What mission trip, if any, should you go on? the timing of telling your friends and family about Jesus, all these decisions that we have to make need to be subjected constantly to the will and the direction of our Father in Heaven. And it's through prayer that He makes that will known to us But how often we forfeit the time where we could be hearing God because we simply don't pray. So I'm answering the question, why did Jesus love to pray? Because He knew, even as we know, that you always have to subject your will to the Father. My will is to, my bread is to do, to do the will of my Father, He says. And my Father will speak that will to me while we pray. But there's also something else that Jesus prayed, why he prayed, and there's a reason why we've got to pray, because it's in the praying that the Spirit of God tenderly ministered to Jesus, empowered Jesus. Jesus, John says, had the full measure of the Spirit of God. None of us have the full measure of the Spirit of God. Romans says we have a measure, but none of us have the full measure. All of the Holy Spirit operated in Jesus helping him to be obedient to his Father all the time he lived on earth. And it's through that time in prayer that the Spirit of God is ministering to Jesus, encouraging Jesus, and confining Jesus' mind to be fixed fully and solely on the will of his Father. You know, in one region of Africa, the first converts to Christianity were very, very diligent about praying. In fact, they would each, they would each have their own special place outside of the village where they would go to pray. This is true story. This is not, I'm not making this up. The villagers reached these prayer rooms, these prayer spots, by using their own private footpaths through the brush. And whenever grass began to grow over one of these trails, it became evident that the person to whom it belonged had not been praying very much. And because they were saved and this village came to Christ, and because they were taught by the missionaries that you're a community and you're responsible for one another's faith to, re- to encourage one another, they would go to one another whenever they saw an overgrown prayer path, they would go to the person who belonged to that path and they would say this. You ready? Friend, there's grass on your path. That's all he said. I wonder if there's grass on our paths. What used to be such a trodden down, well-beaten pathway to God in prayer where we would allow nothing in life to squeeze it out, I wonder now if there's grass that's overgrowing that path. So you can't come away from this account of of Mark chapter 1 where we're seeing what the Son was like and and come away without being convicted and encouraged and challenged to remember that, listen, we know the will of the Father and we're given the power of the Spirit uh, not unlike any means other than prayer. Do you remember I asked you in the beginning, do you know God's mission for you? Do you know why He's got you alive on this planet? Do you know your purpose? in Christ? Most believers can't answer that. And I've never seen an exception to this. The ones who can't answer it don't have a rich prayer time with God. Because that's where God communicates your mission. This is what we're seeing in Jesus. God on a mission as He stayed on track because guess what's about to happen in verse 36 and Simon and those who were with him searched for him and they found him and said to him Jesus everyone is looking for you Do you know what they're thinking now you got to put yourself in the disciples of the shoes the disciples shoes for a moment listen would you leave your career of which you were well established and prosperous They were in a fishing partnership, the four of them, James, John, and Peter and Andrew. Would you leave your career, the thing that you've done all of your life, the thing that you know better than anything else in this world, would you leave that when Jesus came calling? And if you did leave that, would you not now have a very, very large vested interest into the ministry success of Jesus? Would you not want That ministry to be prosperous and to grow. This is what I left my career for. I don't want to enter into a floundering ministry. And we've got 10,000 people in Capernaum all knocking on my door, Peter says, I think, thinking. And it's exciting, Jesus. This is why we left the nets. This is why we left our parents and our boats. Because this is what life is about. And you want to come out here into a desolate place and pray? And even worse, look what Jesus says. Let us go on to the next towns, verse 20, 38. That I may preach. Preach? I can see Peter at least doing what I think I would probably do, and that is, Jesus, haven't you ever heard of the social gospel? Listen, the preaching is passe, that's gone. That's traditionalism. That's what we call fundamentalism, Jesus. The action is getting out and feeding the homeless. The action is getting out and helping those who are bedraggled in life. Jesus, don't you know the words that every church person is going to know in the 21st century? Preach the Gospel at all times and if necessary, what? Use words. That's garbage. The Gospel's always been about preaching it. And it's always been accompanied by the demonstration of power and actions. But it's the preaching that is fundamental. How can anybody come to know Jesus? Romans says the answer, gives us the answer, you've got to be preached to. That means you've got to go to your co-workers and you've got to verbally demonstrate and and make clear the gospel. You've got to go to your schoolmates and you've got to share the gospel. You've got to go to your neighborhoods and you've got to share the gospel. Just acting it out and demonstrating it is not the saving power of the gospel. Declaring it is. And what mutes the power of the gospel is when there is no accompanying demonstration of its Beauty. And this is what Jesus always did. The platform for His ministry was the preaching of the Gospel and the demonstration of the Gospel was always the display. You go to a lot of churches today and they want to forfeit the power of the preaching. Let's make the preaching 15 minutes and let's make the music 45. In fact, there's churches around the nation that are saying, you know what? Let's take this Sunday away from church. Let's just come to church at nine o'clock and we've got vans and we've got buses and we've got a whole storehouse full of canned goods we're going to go downtown and we're going to feed the homeless because that's the most important thing that we ought to do and jesus shows us no it's not the preaching of my word is the most important thing and it better be accompanied by the demonstration of grace how do i know that well, if you don't want to just take Mark chapter 1, verses 38 and 39 for the authority in that, let's go to the role of miracles and the role of signs. Mark chapter 16, and they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. You see, signs and demonstrations were to give authority to the message. Well, let's go a little further. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord who confirmed the message of His grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. Pastor Tim, do you believe signs and wonders happen today? Yes, I think they happen all the time. We probably don't see them. Especially when you go into a new part of the country, of the world that has not yet received the Gospel, there's almost always the accompaniment of signs and miraculous wonders. It's always to confirm the gospel, but it's never to get ahead of the gospel being preached. Hebrews 2 says, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, while God also bore witness to it. What do signs and wonders do and miracles? They bear witness to what the preaching of the gospel and the content of the message of grace has always been. I am so thankful. I don't think I've ever heard an exception yet. I'm sure I will. I've never had anybody in this church come to me and say, Pastor Tim, your messages, they're 40 minutes. They're too long. And you know what? You're going too deep. Let's let's just lighten it up. How about we go down to 20 minutes and just, just preach the sermon, and let's get back to the music. Let's get back to the worship. And let's get people out of the walls of this church and out serving. That's the most important thing. I've never had anybody say that, and I'm so thankful for that. This church recognizes the priority of the preaching of the gospel. Whoever stands in this pulpit will only ever preach the word of God. That's the power of the gospel. What have we learned from Jesus How are we spending the summer in the sun? Ladies, Jesus loves you. And if Jesus loves you, God the Father loves you because Jesus is fully man, fully God. He is God in flesh. And if you're struggling, ladies, He wants to hold your hand and He wants to tenderly walk out of your trials, out of your struggles, out of your ailments. That's the love of Jesus, particularly for women. Man, He loves us as well. And he wants us to, all of us, to proclaim his truth. He set the standard high. He set the standard high. My message, it's my message that is going to be proclaimed and it will be accompanied by the demonstration of the gospel. But it's the message that we all must proclaim faithfully. And how will you know what your mission is? How will you know what your purpose is, friends? It's when your grass is well beaten to your prayer room And God the Father will speak to you and he will tell you, this is why I gave you life. This is what I want you to do with your time on earth. And it will always meet squarely the kingdom of God. That's the most important thing to God. Lord, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the example that Jesus is to us. Lord, I pray that all of us are falling in love with your son even more and that we will be Like Peter's mother-in-law, we will serve you and you will never hear the end of it. Lord, we love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.